Welcome to Feeling It, a podcast where we discuss TV, movies, pop culture, and whether or not we are feeling it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the show. And here we go. Come on, walk and talk. Alright, here we go. You guys want to hear something neat? It's showtime! Hold your ears, folks. Here we go! See what you can do now. Take your position. Alright, ladies, buckle up. Let's do this. Hold on to your butts. Listen to me very, very carefully. Hey, it's me again. Eat him up. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. It's still Barbenheimer Week and the box office is going strong. So today we are talking about the other half of the meme culture. But before we get into Oppenheimer, let's introduce ourselves and name our favorite biopic. I am Sandra Amstutz and I I thought hard about like what qualifies as a biopic versus Mm. based on a true story, you know? Yeah, yeah. So the first biopic that kind of just came to mind, my favorite filmmaker is Nora Ephron, and I would say that one of my favorite biopics is the Julia Child half of Julia and Julia. (laughs) I think that counts. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. I would consider that half of the movie to be a biopic. I agree. To me, a biopic is uh, covers an extended amount of time i think that can be relative but like something like the social network to me feels less like a biopic because it's really centered around a sh- relatively short amount of time like i think that's that's on the edge of a biopic right and i also um, think like a biopic like really has to be about one person for an extended amount of time almost to the point that that person's name or a re- reference to them <laughs> has to be the title of the movie yeah. It can't be about a group of people or an event. Or an incident. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, now that we've defined biopic, <laughs> I'm Lucas Wright from Chicago, and I, my favorite biopic is Steven Spielberg's Catch Me If You Can. Um, yeah. I love that movie. I love Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie, um, and it will forever be the gold standard. That was a close for one for me. Um, I love yeah. that movie, too. Yeah. Have you ever heard anybody pronounce it biopic? I hate when people do that. I absolutely hate. I heard that for the first time like a couple of years ago and didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make any sense when people do <laughs> no, that. Because not all. myopic is a word. Exactly. It, what what a, you're doing is you're making my you're making opic the word. Yes. As opposed to you're making it a, a like a biopic. A biography a bio picture. picture. Yes. 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 Those are yeah. Glad we're on the same page. There. Thank you. Yeah. I I love when we're on the same page. It's it's infuriating when people do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah. All right. Um, well, every week we like to talk about something we've either discovered or rediscovered um, before we talk about our main topic. So, Sandra, tell us what you're feeling. Okay. So, this week I am feeling a TikTok account. If you use TikTok and if you like the actor Jeremy Strong, do I have the, t- oh, the follow for you? Okay. This is... This is getting more and more niche the more you talk about this. <laughs> but let me tell you, you're going to be delighted. So okay. just hold your horses. Um, <laughs> so I – let me start by saying Jeremy Strong, some people maybe find him a little off-putting, how, like, self-serious he is, how intense of an actor he is. I personally love him as an actor and now as a celebrity. I love how self-serious he is. Um, you know, all those like profiles and takes on him as a method actor. He, This is the kind of method acting I can get behind. Because none of his method acting seems like 
cruel or like antagonistic. It just seems like so intense to himself, right? Do you agree or do you not agree? I I, I agree. I agree. It is very inward focus as opposed to someone like um Jared Leto. I love yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's yes. exactly who I was going for. <laughs> right. Someone like Jared Leto who is like really like causing suffering for his co-stars um like that's i can't handle that right but like jeremy strong like wanting to inflict pain on himself it's like yeah do you if that's your process right (laughs) um so i i love him in interviews i love how seriously he takes his craft um and so there is this TikTok account that also seems to revel in Jeremy Strong's use of language and his self-seriousness. And what they have done is they this TikTok account, which I will tell you what the username is so you can go and follow it. It is at Sam Huberty 2. So that is spelled S-A-M-H-U-B-E-R-T-Y 2. Um, they have made a long series of TikToks where there's a caption that the TikTok user writes and then a clip of Jeremy Strong in an interview. Um, I have some examples that I want us to listen to together so that you can understand why I find this funny and delightful. So the first one that I want to play for you, the caption is, Explaining my friend's behavior to my girlfriend after they got too drunk and ruined our dinner party. They are fallible. uh, And in a way, I feel like it's not their fault. I don't think they're odious. I think they're fallible. They're deeply flawed. But this is the this is the well water that they've been drinking their whole lives. So it's symptomatic of of the society. Oh, man. (laughs) His use, his vocabulary is, I just relish it. Here's another one that is, the caption says, when you've had a great night out and your friend brings a round of shots at 1.30 a.m. And it felt like it possibly, you know, what is it, from the sublime to the ridiculous is but a small step. It felt like we might be taking that step. Um... Okay, you're right. I love it. <laughs> okay, I have two more for you. So this last one I think is my favorite. Um, and it, there is a ton of these on this TikTok account. I've just selected a few of my favorites. This one says, me explaining how my friends would relentlessly hassle the substitute teacher in middle school. They, they were anarchic. They were merry pranksters. They were disruptors. And they wanted to expose this mockery of justice through... I think uh, through through sort of guerrilla theater tactics and through humor and through dissent. Uh, <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> guerrilla theater tactics. <laughs> um, okay, and then this is the last one I want to play only yeah. because it's so relative to today. Now, most of them, I like I said, are Jeremy Strong in an interview. I think that's when this account is at its best and what it's mostly doing. This one, however, is a clip from him in succession. And the caption says, Christopher Nolan being passive aggressive to Greta Gerwig after Barbie beat Oppenheimer at the box office. But you, man, your numbers exploding, right? Like literally unbelievable. (laughs) So when I saw that one, I knew, of course, I had to include it in today's episode. You have to. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So sometimes you just come across a social media account that brings you so much joy. 
and you have to share it with other people. And so that's what I wanted to do today. I love it. That's fantastic. Um, it really reminds me of early in our feeling days where one week my pick was a Twitter account called Tiny Field of Stars. Do you remember that? I do. Yes. <laughs> um, and I remember where they you... just tweeted out like star constellations. Basically. It was like, like they used punctuation marks right. to make it look like little stars. And yeah. I remember you scoffing at it and then you pulled it up and you were like, no, this is great. Yeah, no. So just a little, a little nice thing that brings you joy is right. exactly what we're looking for here. Right. So yeah. So for anyone who uses TikTok, this is like I think should be your next immediate follow. Agreed. Um, what are you feeling this week? Ada Limon became our poet laureate last year, um, and I had, hadn't actually read any of her work, so I checked out the Hurting Kind, mm. uh, which was also released last year, and it's a collection of poems that are organized and they correspond with uh, the four seasons and. Some of the poems were written during COVID, and I think the collection really explores, like, isolation uh, and figuring out, like, humanity's connection to each other and the world. And it's really just a beautiful group of poems. And if you like reading poetry, I think you'll love it. And if you don't, I think you actually might like it even more. (laughs) Mm. Um, One of the things that I really love about it is that there's also an audiobook of her reading all of the poems. Um, And that's what I got. And really enjoyed listening to her she she lives in kentucky and talks a lot about just the beauty and the wildlife of the south um and i think a lot of the way that she describes the birds and the fish and the the water is just really interesting and beautiful um i love poetry but it's hard for me to get into for an extended period of time i like reading like one poem at a time you know yeah um so a book of poetry for me is uh intimidating but this i i really liked um kind of how short it is but also just the way that uh, she describes the world so that's the hurting kind by ada limon oh what a great beautiful that's a great recommendation Uh, poetry is something that when i come across it i'm like wow how like i forget that i love it you know and Mm, then yeah and then i'll go years without you know investigating that and then it'll come upon me again um, I feel like poetry is a big hurdle, <laughs> you know, the yeah. barrier to entry is, is high on poetry. Right. Um, but that's such a great tip about the audiobook because I'm not an audiobook person generally, but poetry is the kind of thing that I could really get on board with. Yeah. I've always been more interested in like, even just like performances of poetry versus just reading it just because it, it brings a different energy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it is time. Do we want to talk about Oppenheimer now? Let's do it. This is Christopher Nolan's first biopic, I think, um, about Robert J. No, J. Robert Oppenheimer Mm, (laughs) and his role in developing and the aftermath of the atomic bomb. Um, As part of Barbenheimer, I feel like it has benefited the most from this. Yeah. I don't feel like it's an equal relationship. I feel like Barbie marketing uh, really pushed uh, this as a thing and Oppenheimer went along with it. Yeah. So... I was excited to see Oppenheimer, uh, but less excited than I was to see Barbie. So that's that, that was kind of my thoughts going into it of just like, this is going to be good. I am excited about it. But my anticipation for it was like, if I have to only see one, it's going to be Barbie. How do you feel about Nolan in general? I like Nolan. I feel like his movies are never uh, that moving to me. They're mm. more like, uh, 
I don't say like popcorn flick in a derogatory world, in a derogatory meaning, but more yeah. just like I enjoy watching it as a as a movie. Go to the theater, have some popcorn. It's very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I never walk out of his movie saying saying like I was moved by this, yeah, um, at all. Um, especially like his recent work. Um, so I, I I went into it again expecting that exact same thing, um, and. I thought it was incredible. I really enjoyed Oppenheimer. <laughs> as a as a movie in its own, I think it is an incredible achievement. I think it is beautifully shot. Um I think a lot of this movie is going to be uh I guess clipped as far as part of like um explorations of how to shoot <laughs> things. And I think I think obviously he's very interested in practical effects and so like anything about the making of an atomic bomb you go into it expecting like well he's going to he's going to blow some stuff up and it's beautiful to look at i think some of this movie is um shot in in imax which i did not see it in imax so i can't speak to that but i would imagine that on an imax screen you're just getting some of the most beautiful things <laughs> yeah um that i've ever seen but uh yeah so i went into this expecting it to be good i did not expect it to be uh as good as i as it, as it was i've got more to say but i'd love to hear your thoughts on it yeah. So first, I, I kind of want to talk about my relationship to Nolan really quick. Um, I will preface this by saying I haven't seen um, – I've seen everything Nolan has made, dark, The Dark Knight and on. And then mm. I've seen Batman Begins, but um, everything previous to The Dark Knight other than Batman Begins, I haven't seen. So I haven't seen Prestige or Memento. Um, movies that I do, I am like, I really, really need to go back and watch those films. Um, but all of his more recent work, um, with the exception of Inception, which I was so hyped for, um, Nolan, whenever he has a new movie coming out, I'm always like, oh, that'll probably be good, but I'm not really excited to see it, you know? Um. And then I usually end up either watching it after it's already been out of theaters, like with the case was um, that was the case with Interstellar, or I watch it in theaters because we're going to talk about it on the podcast or it's you know the movie of the moment, but not necessarily yeah. one that I'm hyped for, like Dunkirk. Um, yeah. But then what happens is every time I sit down and actually watch the Nolan movie. I'm blown away. <laughs> and you'd think I'd learn by now. Um, specifically, Dunkirk was actually the best example of that, where I yeah. had really no expectations going into Dunkirk. I was like, war movie, blah. And that I was really like blown away with by how good Dunkirk was. Um, I think Tenet has like a lot of flaws, but I, I left Tenet being really wowed. Um, and so... With Oppenheimer coming out, I kind of learned my lesson in that um, I, I now know, like, I really respect Nolan as a filmmaker and the movies that Nolan makes I'm probably going to love. Um, but let me tell you, the marketing for Oppenheimer, <laughs> even though Barbie, I think, did a lot to, like, bring people to the theaters, the, the Oppenheimer team was working against themselves in a lot of ways, in yes. my opinion. Um Nolan kept doing interviews where he was like, 
it really feels like you're experiencing a bomb in the theater <laughs> or like everyone I've talked to that has seen the movie already leaves devastated about like yeah. mankind's existence. And I'm like, God, this yeah. is he not really made it seem like it was going to be the most punishing thing you've ever experienced. Yes. And so I really found myself coming into this Barbenheimer weekend being more excited for Barbie than I ever was and really kind of, dreading watching Oppenheimer uh, so much so that I did a Barbenheimer sandwich sandwich where I watched Barbie <laughs> and then Oppenheimer and then Barbie again to like cleanse my palate or like that's that <laughs> yeah. was the plan was going into it so I went into this with like mixed expectations ultimately right yeah um and then what I watched I found to be one of the most riveting pieces of cinema I've ever seen um I didn't realize how good Oppenheimer was going to be. Um, <laughs> it, it blew me away. I, I think that this movie is incredible. Um, I, I, it's not perfect. I'm not saying that, like, there, there are probably some things to critique about this film. But mm -hmm. I, ultimately, here's the thing. For better or worse, I love Aaron Sorkin's work. And yeah. this is Nolan doing Sorkin. And it's like, what a great combo. Like, the visual <laughs> sumptuousness of, of Nolan, the pacing and excitement of a Nolan film with all of, like, the meatiness of a Sorkin courtroom drama. Um, yeah. I also just love a courtroom drama. And that's what a lot of this movie is. And so I was really eating it up. Um, and then the other big thing I want to say, like, my biggest takeaway from the film is... Like, look at what a movie can be when you have a giant list of all-star home run hitter actors. You know what I mean? Like, actors that are playing tiny, tiny roles in this movie are, like, actors that I would love to see entire feature films starring them, you know? Yeah. Originally, I was unsure how I was going to feel about that. I was like, if everyone in this movie is famous, then, like is that useful? Like, is that how, does that take away from the experience at yeah. a certain point? Um, and the answer is no, no, <laughs> it, does it, not. <laughs> it makes for, like I said, riveting is the, is the only word I can think of when I, when yeah. I describe this movie is yeah. this movie is three hours long. I did not mind it at all because I was so invested every single minute of it, which I was shocked by. I thought yeah. there was going to be a point where I was like, meh, yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> there have been a plenty of a there have been three hour movies that you and I have gotten on this podcast and been like, this movie There have been two hour movies <laughs> where we've gotten on and been like, this is too long. Yeah, this movie is too long. Um I remember us talking about one of the Snyder, like the I think it was Batman v Superman. And I think mm -hmm. we had, we reviewed the extended cut. Um and we were saying like if you need to make a three-hour movie, you, like, might not be a good filmmaker. Like, you might yeah. be bad at editing, you know? And I don't want every filmmaker to make a three-hour movie, but when you are this good, I don't mind it at all. Yeah, I think one of the things that he has a tendency to do is be too quick about everything. Like, just try and get, try and dump a bunch of information out. Uh, I think faster than is useful. Yeah. Um, and in this movie, I actually think it works to its benefit. Um, yeah. at, at the beginning of this movie, I was worried about that just cause again, things were happening faster. 
it felt like things were unraveling quickly. Um, but it gave you the sense of like things are we're in the middle of World War Two. Like things are unraveling quickly. Yeah. Um, and so it really helped that. And then as it went along, I think some of its explorations of we're moving too fast to consider the. I guess the the consequences of our actions, mm-hmm. I think, helped some of that. Um, again, this is no spoiler. Uh, they created an atomic bomb. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so dealing with the fallout of that, of what does that mean for America? What does that mean for, uh, you know, the world? All of that is something that is difficult to explore if you, one, in hindsight, because I think we know, like, what happens. We know the consequences. And mm-hmm. not giving them time to think about it, I think, helps us uh really be in their shoes yeah i also you know nolan is known for playing with timelines and linear and non-linear storytelling Mm -hmm. in his films especially in dunkirk like that is a main tool that he uses in dunkirk and he does it again here spoiler um, that he uses non-linear storytelling in one of his movies um but in this movie i really liked it i thought for me, it wasn't confusing. For me, it was like, it kept me on my toes. It kept me thinking as I was watching the film. You know, like, whenever something would happen out of order, it was like the puzzle that I had to solve. Like, when is this happening? Oh, because, you know, he doesn't have kids yet. Then it's happening here, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it kept me alert and invested in a movie that, like, again, is very long, right? Um. And so, to me, that was such a feature, not a bug. That it, like I love that he did it that way. I agree with that. I think it's I think it's a difficult uh, thing to pull off <laughs> in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it worked really well. And I don't know if that's like he got lucky and it worked out here, or if that is like he's intentionally trying to do something a little bit uh, more considered than what he usually does. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things to critique about the film that people much smarter than me can be the ones to do. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the the politics of this film, um, I'm just going to say I'm not intelligent enough or, or educated enough to really dive into how this film addresses like the ethics and politics of, you know, the atomic bomb. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to put that as a disclaimer. Right. Um, <laughs> The thing that I will critique it on, but this is really, I'm, I'm not hounding on this. Like, I'm going to bring it up, but, like, I'm not, this isn't really make me not like the movie, okay? Yeah. Um, Nolan's not great at female characters. Well, he's not. And, <laughs> and I think particularly in this movie, he's not great at, at female characters. Yeah. You know, if you're going to critique the movie in some way, that's the clearest thing for me to critique it on. Mm-hmm. Um. Emily Blunt is an amazing actress that has two really great scenes in this film. Um, and so I was really happy like to see her shine in those two scenes. But then for the rest of the movie, she is kind of, you know, she's the wife. She is set yeah. dressing. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie is almost entirely white men. Um, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I, if I had to guess, it would be like... 85% maybe, maybe higher, yep. you know? Um, I, I don't, I don't want to critique it too hard for that because I think that that is intentional and in that this is a story about what happens when only white men are heralded as geniuses and in power and, you know, like 
leading a war, right? Um, so I, I think there's an intentionality behind that, but it's unavoidable that that's also a limitation in like perspective, right? Uh, yeah. And so um, it's something I want to call out, even though I'm not saying that like the movie is at fault for that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Definitely. I yeah. fully agree with that. I think one of the... I. I, I actually do want to address some of the politics stuff. Yeah, please, please <laughs> just, do. I think the idea that, like, I, I, I will not say, I'll, I'll say this. It's not a spoiler to say we do not see the aftermath of the bombing from the Japanese perspective at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. anybody assumed that that would be in this movie at all. But that's not part of it. And I think I at least have heard a lot of feedback of, like, that's a big part of the atomic bomb aftermath is the perspective of it. And, and yeah. I think not every movie has to include every perspective. I think totally. this specifically is about Oppenheimer and his and his feelings about the aftermath from his perspective. We are so tight into his perspective throughout this movie that to have a segment that is outside of that wouldn't really work. I think we should make more movies that are from other people's perspectives other than the straight white men. <laughs> yes. Um, but not every movie has to include those. I think the same thing goes for Barbie, um, which we, we mm-hmm. didn't talk about this on the Barbie episode, but the intersectionality of being a woman and being a woman of color. That's not addressed yeah. in Barbie. I don't think it it's has like to. there's like a line, like yes. there's like a quick line, but it's right. like, yeah, not a main theme, theme right. of the film. Right. Which you could have a Barbie movie that is about that. Yeah. I don't think that's necessary for every single movie. So I think the filmmakers should make the movies that actually are, are making sense for them. And in mm-hmm. this instance, I wouldn't, I don't want Christopher Nolan to make a movie about the Japanese experience of, yeah. of, of the atomic bombs. So agreed. And I do think that what helps is that this film is about. Oppenheim- not just the period where Oppenheimer is working on the atomic bomb. Right. It is about his, almost his whole life, you know, mm-hmm. from, from him as a young, young man to him at his old age. And so the fact that it is, that that is specifically what the story, the movie is called Oppenheimer and the story is about this man. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, this major historical event happened because of this man and in this man's life, but that the, the, the movie makes it clear, like, this is the story I'm trying to tell. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And, again, a lot of the decisions that get made are made by white men in, in small rooms. And yes. that's we, we see that all the time in this movie. We see that all the time in real life. And to have a movie about that um, yeah. where and about kind of the frustration of the outcomes of that, uh, I think is important. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally. To talk more about some of, like, the positives of this film um, – like I said earlier, there's so many incredible actors. It would take us too long to list, like, all of the amazing actors in this movie. Um, there's two performances that I think I left this film really, really blown away by. I'm going to set Cillian Murphy aside just because it's so obvious that he's so good in this movie, right? Like, I, I don't even feel like I need to talk about it because that's such an obvious statement. Yeah. The two performances that I was really taken by... Um, number one is there's a lot of, like I said earlier, amazing, amazing actors playing very small side character roles, right? Mm -hmm. They get one or two scenes. If they're lucky, they get a good amount of, they get a a dialogue scene, you know, where they get to say a little mini monologue. Um, the person that I really like loved 
was David Crummels. Yeah. Um, his scenes I thought were so special. And he's an actor that I've always enjoyed. Even, you know, he's been in 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm-hmm. He's been in the Santa Claus films. There's There's been other stuff, but those are the things you'd probably, like, remember him from. To see him do an adult drama and to kind of steal every scene that he's in, I, I just really loved him. I mean, I feel like he is the heart of the movie, which is a yeah. weird thing to say about, like, if you're just looking through the characters in this movie, <laughs> you wouldn't think it'd be him. Um, but I think he just does such a good job of bringing uh, emotion and, I think, reality to this film in a ways that I think is difficult for Christopher Nolan in most of his movies. Um, so every time he was there, I was excited and I wanted more of him. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other performance that um, I do want to talk about is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. I've always known Robert Downey Jr. is a really good actor, right? (laughs) He's a huge movie star. That's not a surprise. But I haven't seen him do something like this. I don't know if I've ever seen him do something like this. Yeah. Um, We've watched him for over a decade be Iron Man. And he's great at being Iron Man, but it was... So refreshing to see him stretch his muscles in all these directions. I, I, I really was taken by him, and I his scenes were some are, were my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, again, they were they were also some of the most Sorkin esque scenes um, yeah. to me, yeah. and that's also another reason why I really connected with them. But um, yeah, it made me very very excited to see him in the new Park Chan Wooks um, series yes. that's yes. being developed definitely yeah Yeah, i i thought he was great i thought um the way that um he's integrated into this plot in a way that i like what what we can talk about more in spoilers not 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 to say that this is a big spoilery movie it's a biopic after all but about world history yes yeah but just the way that like um we're cutting back and forth between different timelines um i thought was very interesting and very well done uh i'm excited to see i'm excited to see it again for a second time um, yeah. to really get into the details of <laughs> of those different timelines. That's another thing. Before seeing Oppenheimer, I would have bet that this is a kind of movie you see once and then never again. Agreed. Even if it's good, <laughs> yeah. you know, that you're like, yeah, I don't need to endure a three-hour movie about the atomic bomb, like, multiple times. And now after seeing it, I can't wait to see it again. And that's amazing to say. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. I'm seeing it in 70 millimeters this week. And so oh, I'm, I'm curious I'm to see what the, how I feel differently about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will chat about that. Yeah. Um, it's just, like I said earlier, it, it makes me the, the fact, the size of this cast and the like overflowing amount of talent that is in this cast. What it really makes me wonder is, you know, I guess you get this amount of talent by being someone like Christopher Nolan, right? Someone yeah. who produces original films that continue to be successful hit after hit after hit. That on his name alone, he can get whatever budget he needs because he delivers the results, right? Yeah. And he can deliver original filmmaking. And so, you know, um, I saw an interview with Matt Damon where he said, and he's incredible in this film, yeah. by the way. Um, Matt Damon was saying that he, his wife told him he really needed to take like time off. Like she was like, this is really important to us as a family. You, I need you to take an extended break from acting. And he agreed and he, but he worked in, he negotiated with his wife and he said, the one exception though, is if 
Christopher Nolan calls. I have <laughs> to do it. And then Christopher Nolan calls. Um, and so all of that just makes me think what other films we could get from other filmmakers if they were given the power and the license, the creative license that Christopher Nolan is given, you know, yeah. what kind of films could we get from Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig um, with casts like this, yeah. you know, not I mean, this exact cast, but like a, ca- a cast of this size and of this talent spectrum. Yeah. I mean, those are the, you mentioned Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig. Those are the two people I was the, also thinking of, of like, yeah. those are the people who are on track to go that direction. And based right. on the movies that they're making, it looks like they want to be Christopher Nolan, not like yeah. aping his style, but just saying like, I want to have that kind right. of career where I can pull in the best people to make yeah. original movies that are outstanding from a filmmaking perspective that everybody mm-hmm. will want to produce <laughs> and pay for and yeah. then see a result from um, that a studio will give me the budget to make it yep. and then the promotion that it deserves exactly and that's what i want for most filmmakers like just why like as the as talented you said, like, ones yeah like this is this is the dream <laughs> yeah. that you could get the ability to make something like this i mean the amount of promotion we have behind a biopic is incredible right. And Ryan Johnson also is like kind of starting to be at that Nolan level, right? Where he can get the biggest stars working and, you know, Netflix will give him however much money he wants to, to make whatever his heart desires. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I want, like we talked about in the Barbie episode is how this Barbenheimer weekend has been so thrilling because of the enthusiasm that we're witnessing firsthand in the movie theaters and how, gosh, how great it would be if we could do stuff like this all year long, you know? Yeah. I'm curious if we're going to see a bump next weekend. Not not mm. just on those two movies, but in just yeah. people going to movie theaters, period. Yeah, that's a great question. If there's, if there's more movies that we'll be getting kind of the after effects of uh, Barbenheimer. Yeah. Um, it's also such a weird and interesting time that this is also all happening right as the actor strike has started. Yes. <laughs> um, and so it's like you're conflating this huge box office weekend with now actors aren't able to promote their upcoming movies. Yeah. And so like, yeah, how do those two things react to each other? Yeah. Well, I don't think I have any other Oppenheimer Definitely. thoughts that aren't spoiler. Yeah. I think it's filled. time to move into spoilers for it. Okay. Great. Right, so if you have not read, <laughs> what's the book? It's Oppenheimer's based on? Wikipedia yeah, oh, yeah. or the book. Yeah. yeah. You, can, you really get to see the difference between Lucas and I, in my <laughs> mind true. went straight to the Wikipedia page and his went to I the went actual biography. To American Prometheus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Spoilers starting now. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? Are you paying attention? It's your last chance to walk away. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Now, cracking gas. Spoilers! Remember, you wanted this. I'm a big sucker for a great, like, quote at the beginning of a film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when that happened in Nope this mm-hmm. last year, like, that immediately, like, blew my mind and got me in the headspace. And then this one also... I just love it. I love for something like that to set the tone for your entire viewing experience. Yeah, I agree. I think it, every time I see it, it can it can go one of two ways. It can go, mm. this is exciting. I'm very excited to see where this goes. Or you you feel like a film school bro who thinks their movie sure. is important. <laughs> sure. But with people like Christopher Nolan and Jordan Peele, like I, 
I trust them to start their movie with a quote and me get excited about that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I do want to start with the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, timeline of it all. The black and white. The black and the white timeline. Yeah. yeah, I was trying to track timelines at the yeah, beginning. Yeah, me too. And and my my thought this is a probably based on watching Memento is mm. I was like this is going to change from color to black and white at some point. Mm. And so we're we're getting the and my assumption was at the time at when the atomic bomb goes off that's when the world changes and that's when we get black and white. That is not the case because we have the uh, no. the other hearing. <laughs> yeah. Which I realized about halfway through I was like no 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 this happens after the atomic bomb so it can't be that that's when it happens. But it is a perspective shift I think is what it is is we're seeing yeah. it from Oppenheimer's perspective versus from Strauss, Struss, Strauss, Strauss, Strauss. That's right, because he makes it very clear that it's like it is Strauss, not Strauss, because he's trying to distance himself. Well, I think he said it's not because I'm trying to distance myself; it's because I grew up in the South. And oh, that's you're right. That that is that's (laughs) you know how everyone in the South just said it. You know, that is one thing I did know going into this film is I saw an interview with Nolan where he describes what he intended by the black and white and the color. Ah. Um, and if I'm remembering this correctly, his intention is that the color scenes are from Oppenheimer's perspective and to the point where they're not fully reliable. Like it mm-hmm. is so his perspective that it's like, you, you can't even say that it is 100% truth, you know? Yep. Um, and that the black and white scenes are, um, objective this is what happened in the world truth yeah. um that it's it wasn't so much that black and white was strauss's perspective it's that like no black and white is like this is what's really happening for sure and color is oppenheimer's point of view interesting yeah, yeah. again i i'm like 75 80 percent sure that's what i remember him saying in an interview um and the reason that i remember that is because Someone on Twitter quote tweeted that like, you know, line from his interview saying, explaining that saying like, dude, these people didn't get the color shifting in little women. They are not going to get the one. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and that really made me laugh, especially, you know, with Gerwig yes. and him yeah. happening this weekend. Yeah. That's hilarious. Because I, I do remember in little women that being a thing. People yes. like not understanding the color stuff and or complaining about the color stuff and Mm -hmm. i was like you fools yes (laughs) i do think Um, it's more important in little women than it is here um whereas it's also more subtle in little women yes agreed agreed yes although there is a color shift between the hearing and the bomb making i guess um so even though they're both in color they do have different color grades which is interesting but that that sequence basically everything about that hearing to me feels Which a little hearing? uh sorry the the stress <laughs> stress stress oh the the congressional hearing yes yes now now i don't remember what it is, is Strauss. It Strauss. there we go like drink straws yes thank you yes the Strauss hearings that those are the ones that felt the most sorkin to me and uh the least important to the story itself up until the end where we get the reveal um that he is not confirmed <laughs> yeah um I also did not like Alden Ehrenreich in this. I don't know if it's him or if it's just his character is boring, I guess. I don't know. Mm. Um, it just didn't, he didn't work for me in this. But he's like one of the only ones in this movie <laughs> who I was yeah. just like, meh, take it or leave it. 
I have a soft spot for Alden Ehrenreich as an actor. Um, so I was happy to see him here. But I will say his character, I think, felt the most Sorkin-y in a negative way. Yeah, like, very rich. Kind of like idealistic, you know, like, man working in um, Washington that, yeah. like, expects the best of people, you know, like. He also has a um, lot of exposition to give. Um, sure. And... I think has some cheesy lines at the end when he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of uh, showing up Robert Downey right, Jr. Right. So, yeah, you know, you mentioned that congressional hearing feeling very Sorkin-y, but I will say the other hearing was also super Sorkin-y, especially like more sure. social network Sorkin-y. For sure. Yeah. In a way that I found fascinating. You know, I love that that was a courtroom drama without an audience, right? That it was in a small little room, but it still had all the intensity and the the rapid fire of like a large courtroom drama. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I definitely got confused early on on what the point of the second one was. I understood this, that like- The he congressional was, hearing? No, the, uh, the security credentials. Okay. Um, that one- it took me a while to figure out that that's what it was. I'm positive they said it early on exactly what was happening there, like what the stakes were there. I came back around to it. I was like, okay, this is what this is. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I didn't know that it was about his security clearance. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I needed to know that. Like to me, it was just he was being put on trial. And it was like, mm-hmm. I didn't know. Like, I think when it first started, I just assumed but I think it was kind of indicative of my very modern day perspective. I think I assumed like he's being put on trial for creating the atomic bomb, you know, <laughs> um, you know, being interrogated for like yeah. the horrors he has committed to yeah. mankind. Um, no, no, and no. Then, they were very happy with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so then, but then it became clear as the movie was going on, you know, especially towards the end that straws had set up this, you know, security clearance thing. But I think that that what I like is that it didn't even really matter why he was being put on trial. Like all we need to know is that he's being persecuted, quote unquote, yep. right? Yep. Um his and that he feels the need to I love that it starts with him saying like I have prepared this statement and he starts when he's like in his 20s, you yeah. know? <laughs> that like no matter what this hearing is, he knows that he publicly is being condemned in some way yeah. and he needs to make a full justification for his whole life um, within this hearing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought that was really smart. I think the breakneck pace at the beginning also worried me because um, it felt tenant. The beginning of tenant is so annoying to me <laughs> yeah. because of how much happens like within the first 30 minutes. Um, yeah. There's no time to breathe. There is, information thrown at you there's like 25 different locations and when this movie started i was like oh no we're gonna do this for three hours <laughs> um and it evens out i don't think it slows down but it definitely evens out in a way that makes sense um so which i was very happy with but i did get worried at yeah. the beginning. my big concern at the beginning was oh i should have read some world war ii wikipedia pages before <laughs> <laughs> jumping into this movie or um but just because I just realized that I'm not, I know I'm not, here's another disclaimer for this whole conversation. I am not a history buff nor a science buff. Yeah. Um, those are subjects that I don't get invested in. And so when this movie was starting, I was kind of like, ooh, 
there's a lot that I'm sure is really significant that I'm (laughs) missing. And that I almost wish I could just hit pause so that I could Google this person's name real quick, you know, and catch myself up. Specifically, that happened when Heisenberg was introduced. (laughs) I was like, I know Heisenberg. I know that name is important. Like, that name is ringing a bell. And obviously, in the movie, it seems like this pivotal introduction. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know enough about Heisenberg, the figure, to know, like, what, what is he, what's his role here, you know? I, and I, then did, I did the exact same thing. And I was like, I can't tell if I should actually know who Heisenberg is or if I'm recognizing the name Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, is right. Is that what this is? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it was one of those things. You know, and his role was revealed in the film, so it ultimately yeah. was fine. Yeah. Um, but there were, yeah, moments like that where I was kind of like, oh, you know. And we were meeting little, people very quickly. Right. Even little things like watching it, I was like, I wish I could just Google, like, Albert Einstein. What year did, was he born? What year did he die? Yes. Like, how old is Albert Einstein in these scenes, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. The clarity um, around the timeline also was difficult. Not even, like, the cutting between timelines, but just, like, where right. in history are we at this point? Right. <laughs> so. Yeah. Man, let me tell you, it really helped the line, I mean, is it intentional? I'm sure. But the line where in the film, when Oppenheimer and Strauss first meet and he's offering him that job. Yes. Um, and, and Strauss says, like, you have two kids, right? Yeah. Um, that was like my touchstone for the whole movie. Same. I was like, okay, so he hasn't had the two kids yet. All right, he's got yes. one kid. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it really helped in those. What was it ACC or AAC, whatever that committee yeah. was? During those meetings, it was like, okay, Straws, this isn't his first time meeting him. So this is after, you know, like right. th- that right. was also helpful. Yeah. You know, again, those, I really kind of relished that game. I, I, I did too. Those are the things that are going to like take a backseat during the second watch through. Cause I'm like, all right, I know exactly. that I know the timeline of what happens. So now I can like really enjoy some of the other stuff, but the first time through, right. I don't think it's detrimental to watching it. Right. I also think around the actual like Trinity test that I, I think I probably have more knowledge around that just because it mm. went off like an hour from where I grew up. So like that's oh. embedded in the history <laughs> of New yeah. Mexico in a way yeah. that I, I think most people uh, don't, don't have that, that history there. So like, um, I think once we got there, I was like, all right, I'm on sure footage footing here. I've got, <laughs> I've got this. Okay. Yeah. So. You know, another thing that I was really kind of new information to me because I'm not a history buff. I knew that this movie would be about Oppenheimer and I knew that, or my understanding going into this movie is that Oppenheimer created the, to- the atomic bomb. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think I went into this thinking that Oppenheimer is this genius who like he had the idea for and did all the, the science work of inventing the atomic bomb, which is partially true. Right. But what I learned in the movie is that he was really more of a leadership figure and like a charismatic figure who is also like a scientific genius, you know? Yes. Yes. I think he recognized the scientific implications of the science that was happening in the world already and just kind of pushed it in this direction with a team. Right. I think this whole time I kind of like naively thought like he alone did the science that created the atomic bomb and like had people that like doing the building, you know? Yeah. Um, But he was like the lone scientist that like, 
figured it out. And then to learn, like, oh, no, there was, like, hundreds of scientists and working that it's on a, it in multiple cities. Right. And that it yeah. was a space race but against the Germans. Like, yes. like that they knew that somebody was going to invent the atomic bomb quickly. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Right. Because that understanding, obviously, okay, I just want to, another disclaimer. Yep. yep. <laughs> Nothing I say, I think, I, I do not want to justify the invention and the effects of the atomic Correct. bomb. Yep. <laughs> okay. That, let's get that out of the way. Yeah. But watching this, it made more sense to me when you realize like, they feel the need, the desperate need to create this because they're thinking the Nazis are going to do it first. Yes. And they'd rather have them have the power of nuclear warfare than the Nazis. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that context, I, I don't think justifies, but it does help me understand like the perspectives of all these people who especially these like liberal people mm -hmm. right yeah who um are free thinkers and you know seemingly want the best for the world right yeah um why they would be invested in the creation of this like weapon yeah absolutely yeah. and i think we get into some cringy aspects of it like not cringy from a the movie is cringy but just from a right uh, a, a politics you are meant to mm -hmm. feel uncomfortable <laughs> right with some aspects of it after the bomb goes off when when he has almost like the pep rally um, yeah that for me was one hard to watch uh yeah. i thought the audio in it was brilliant just the mm -hmm. way that he uh ended up cutting between like the noise of the crowd and then cutting out the noise of the crowd and having him just kind of give his pieces of speeches um right. in there that just didn't cut together in a way that actually was you know uh patriotic and rousing but like you could yeah. tell the crowd was just like eating up everything like that and the conversation in the room where they're they're deciding um where to drop the bomb like that yeah. was right. just a terrifying conversation and how he immediately gets shut down by matt damon's character <laughs> yeah is yeah. ugh. It was so yeah. like I, I think so, like some of the criticisms against this movie I have a hard time with because I do feel like we are meant to feel like this was all in all a very bad thing. I mean, the end of the movie mm -hmm. is saying like we were right. We did destroy the world. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So I yeah, I, I just think like the way that it was shot really puts extra emphasis on um, some of the more horrifying natures of it. Yeah. One thing that was so. um smart about that scene and this is like another little tidbit that i kind of knew going into the movie is i saw someone on twitter before i saw the film say um you'd think i'd be joking but it's true that in this movie a crowd of people shouts oppie oppie yeah. like um <laughs> and so but the what's so smart is that happens early in the movie at like a dinner like at a you know like a communist event or something yeah. Um, and so what happened and I was like, oh, that's the thing on Twitter. And it's kind of funny in that mm -hmm. moment, you know, that like, and it's, you know, not, not serious. It's, uh, you know, yeah. But then for that to be, you know, recalled in that horrifying scene yeah. for that, that same, you know, act of a crowd of people shouting his name, not just shouting Oppenheimer, but shouting Oppie, this like familial, you know, um, to see, like, a man being taken by his 
you know, praise and fame um, in a way that like seems funny and lighthearted at first and then seems horrifying um, was so smart. Yeah, it really is incredible. Um, I want to talk about what I think is not intentionally funny, but was <laughs> the funniest part of this whole movie for me. Okay. Do you know, do you know what I'm going to say? I do not. Okay. A line that has been used in the marketing of this film and that has been like historically known to be related to Oppenheimer is the, you know, I am, I am become death destroyer of worlds, you know, line when that line first shows up in the movie and it said, while like Florence Pugh is writing Oppenheimer, (laughs) I laughed out loud in my theater. Everyone did. Yeah. (laughs) That was so funny. (laughs) Um, I don't love the portrayal of the Florence Pugh character. In this movie, I think the nudity was strange. Very I think weird. it was, I don't, I don't know how intentional that strangeness was or wasn't. Um, I think the scene where she and him are like on top of each other in the hearing and it's Emily Blunt picturing them as mm-hmm. he's like admitting to his, this affair yeah. on the public record. Yeah. Right. I loved the way that was yeah, done. Yeah, that was I extremely that, affecting. Totally. I think, like, that is a way where, like, nudity is so important, right? Because it really, like, puts you in that Emily Blunt character's perspective. And for him, because, again, we, yeah. we see him naked in front of all of those people. Like, just right. showing his vulnerability, like, in his head. Like, that's what. Yes. So, like, all of that, I thought, worked really well. The actual... Yes. uh Sex I would say sex scenes and just the intimacy of those characters didn't really yeah. work for me at all. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I just yeah. don't think I just don't think this is Nolan's strong point. And to have no. the marketing lean into it and being like, "Hey, hey, hey, hang on." <laughs> yeah, you're gonna get some nudity. It's like, and no, it was like no, thank yeah, you. That's not what I want. Weird yeah. Yeah. nudity. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will say, like the as far as romance goes, setting aside like mm-hmm. the sex scenes, yeah. um, the scene in which Emily Blunt's character, Kitty, his wife, and Oppenheimer have that, like, horse ride out on the plains, and she tells her story, and they have their first kiss. I was very taken by that. Like, that was, like, I think she gets, like I said, she gets two great scenes, and to me, that's one of them. Um, I think it was romantic and classical and grand and... um, if, if if that was the romance Christopher Nolan was referring to, I will applaud him for that. Yeah. Um, it was a great scene. Yeah. yeah. But, and, and then her second one in the here, oh, um, yes. was also just tremendous. And again, that's one of those situations where you're like, this is what Emily Blunt read and was like, okay, I will do this. Like, right. Also again, so Sorkin-y. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. Loved. Yeah. That, the, the, that's the Sorkin I love. You know, Very. I keep saying Sorkin, just to be clear to anyone who's, unaware sorkin is not involved in this film i just keep referring to his you know his clear influence on this film yeah i think from a like entertainment perspective it does i'm i don't dislike the the hearing stuff but i think Mm -hmm. it loses some steam after the actual bomb test i think we're Mm -hmm. pushed so far to like get to that bomb test and then we don't know what we're aiming for at the end um 
and so I think I really enjoyed all of the hearing stuff on both both sides of those those two hearings, but not knowing where we we're going, yeah, <laughs> um, kind of made me wonder. It, I just had like lots of I feel like lots of questions mm-hmm. there at the end, um, but it definitely didn't take away from my enjoyment of the film. Yeah, who was your so. favorite? Like, oh wait, they're in this movie. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> did um, you have any of those that really stuck out to you? So many. I didn't know yeah. Jack Quaid was going to be in here. Um, oh yeah. So see, seeing him show up, I was like, oh okay, this is fun. Um, yeah. Also, the the thing with the cameos is because there are so many. Th- there have been other movies where you have a famous person show up for like a quick shot and you're like, well, they're going to come back and they're going to do something incredible because they're famous in this movie. You have no idea because everyone's (laughs) famous. You're just like, is this just, is he just playing a guy with no lines in this movie for fun? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, Rami Malek has two scenes where he doesn't say a single word. I'm like, all right, best actor. Uh, Rami Malek is just in this movie. He does have a, you know, a closing speech at the end which makes sense why you would cast him there but i was just like yeah. he could have he could have just had two scenes with no lines that they just sure. and i'm sure some of this is like they ended up cutting some some things there but um i think for me remy malik was the big surprise and even in the yeah. theater when he shows up for the first time people kind of chuckled or were surprised by <laughs> that he was here so yeah my favorite, I mean, there's tons, but my favorite is Olivia Thirlby. She plays, like, the scientist yeah. that is, like, kind of, you know, at, speaking out against using the bomb that yeah. she has worked on creating. Yeah. Um, and she's one of the few, uh, maybe the only female scientist that's, like, at least that working on... Yeah. Yeah. Um, and mostly I was just excited because I loved... I've always loved her, like, whenever she's popped up and stuff. But I especially love her in Juno. I think... Mm-hmm. She's such a star in that movie. I mean, she plays like the sidekick best friend role, but it's, she plays it so well that every time I like see a scene from Juno, I'm always like, what happened to Olivia Thirlby? You know? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think I saw her here and was just like, oh man, I want her in more things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I was just, I was happy to see her ultimately. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm looking through IMDb to see like others. Um, uh, Casey Affleck for me was a massive <laughs> surprise. Um, yeah, big surprise. And felt weird, I guess. Um, I, I think one of the interesting things about like casting famous people with something like The Bear, where you cast mm-hmm. all of these really famous people to show their importance in your main character's life. You're, 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 like, you're saying this will be as big of an impact on you as an audience as it is on, uh, on our character. Whereas here... I don't feel like that's the case. That's not why Nolan's casting mm-hmm. all of these famous people. Here, yeah. I think it's just because he can. <laughs> uh, but, and so I think with Casey Affleck, you get some of the like the sinister, scary nature of a, of a Casey Affleck um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in this movie when he has one scene, really, or I guess two technically, but they're spliced into one. Like you it's, know what's it's re- weird. You know what's really interesting about the Casey Affleck of it all is that there are scenes, there are shots, maybe not whole scenes, but there are shots leading up to like a reveal that yeah. it's Casey Affleck. Yeah, he's talking and they're like shooting the back of his head and you're about yes. to see who this is and who is it? Who is it? It's Casey Affleck. And you're like, oh. Very, <laughs> yeah. It seems like that kind of technique would be saved for like a huge A-list name, you know? Um, like like a Matt Damon in Interstellar kind right. of thing, right? right. Yeah. Um. So to me, Casey Affleck is not an A-lister. 
don't I, know. I, 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 I would like call, understand that he's a big name. Like, I, he is a, a big actor. I would call him an A-lister, but not a movie star, I guess. Um, yeah. I think most people know him. I just don't think... I guess my biggest point is, he's not famous enough for this kind of reveal. That kind of reveal. Also, I don't think his character makes sense to have this kind of reveal. <laughs> yeah. Right, like it's, it's not, not like that character had been referenced earlier in the film. No, like it's, it's not like we were spooky. building up. Yeah, it's not a surprise to figure out. Okay, who is it? Who is it that we've seen? Because part of as right. because they were or doing like the you don't want to deal with this guy. Right, like, exactly. He's bad news. Yeah. yeah, but it also made me think that maybe they cut some stuff. Like maybe there was more yeah. to his character than we yeah. ended up getting. But that's possible. I didn't notice him in this film, but I do just want to point out that there is a Skarsgård in this movie. Um, is there that, another one? Yeah. Yeah, that that Stellan Skarsgård has another son that is not Bill or Alexander, and yeah. his name is Gustav Skarsgård, and he's in this movie. I was surprised by the Gary Oldman scene, yep. um, and that was one where when he appears, which that also makes more sense to me as a big reveal for sure. You know? President like, of the United States role, like right. Um, as I was watching it, I was like, I'm 80% sure that's Gary Oldman. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, Josh Peck is in the trailer in a very significant way. Um, so I knew he was in this film. Um, but it was, it's still kind of fun to see him in a Christopher Nolan film. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Benny Safdie is the weirdest casting in this. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I have no issues with his performance. Just it's, right. it's interesting that you would give such a big role. I assumed he'd have a much smaller role, but you'd yeah. give such a big role to one of the yeah. directors. Of, he really is a big part of this movie. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I love seeing Kenneth Branagh. Like, yeah. I do love Kenneth Branagh in Nolan film. I love Kenneth Branagh in everything in a weird way that he's like, <laughs> he's so sincere and so cheesy in absolutely yeah. everything he's in that you're just like, yeah, absolutely, man. I know you love this. You just absolutely yeah. love this. So, <laughs> oh, I also think we really need to talk about Jason Clark. Yes, uh, so good. So, I mean, Jason Clark is real usually pretty great. Like, yeah. I, I can't everything I remember him in. I'm always like, wow, that guy's great at being villainous. Yeah. You know, but um, usually he's like a uh, an ineffective villain, like a or like, like a cucked husband. Oh, yeah, a cucked husband or like a mad drunk, like just someone who's yeah. just like is a bad guy and is a right. small threat, but not, but not in like a, an aggressive way. Like, I, I guess yeah. an alpha way. Isn't that the right way to say? I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. But yeah. And in here where he is the, he is the guy who's just hammering, he, hammering right. Oppenheimer throughout the entire hearing. He's smart. He's sc scary in like a, in a very yeah. intense way. Um, yeah. So good. So good. Amazing. Tony Goldwyn very little to do oh, in those yeah. scenes, but just his face, you know, like you just believe like he is a man that works in Washington in the, I want to say fifties. Yep. <laughs> We're in the fifties um, at that point, I think. Okay. Fifties. Yeah. You just believe like he fits in that era. His, yeah. like he, his face, you just can't take his, your eyes off of him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I loved him in those scenes. Um, Dane DeHaan. Yeah. As, like, a sniveling villain. Yeah, great. Um, great. It's also, someone pointed out on Twitter that, like, remember when we all thought Dane DeHaan was going to be the next Leonardo DiCaprio? Yes. I, I think that was 
back when he looked a little more boyish. <laughs> yeah. Interesting to see him now. I mean, and this movie didn't do him any favors. Like, no, no. They're intentionally, it, like, pushing yeah. back that hairline. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and making him see, look sniveling. Yeah, you know, like... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Matthew Modine. I mean... Mm-hmm. Good uh, stuff. Alex Wolf. You know, yeah. just... Alex Wolf didn't have anything to do. Nothing like, to do. Nothing to but do. But happy to be there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael Anagaro. Um, I I have a soft spot for him because of Almost Famous, you know? Mm, and yeah. so... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. Matt Damon, I think, was really, really good in this movie. Um, you know, we talked about David um, Crumwaltz being the heart. Mm-hmm. And Matt Damon's character has, like, these villainous moments right mm-hmm. um but also during a lot of the movie you like you kind of get that he's part of the heart you know yeah. like yeah he's the character that you kind of trust um and that he also like his sense of urgency feels um well-intentioned maybe yeah definitely well-intentioned but yeah. someone who's definitely like i think realistic as opposed to idealistic yes. He's, right. he's a good counter to to Oppenheimer there in a way that I just think that was a really really smart casting mm-hmm. someone that can that you both trust and distrust at the same time right yeah because I think if you yeah. if you cast most people that character becomes more of a foil um, right as opposed more to of a just, hard ass yeah yeah, yeah. John Hamm and Top Gun exactly. you know like yeah yes yeah yeah, versus, like, an ally that is just being tough on you. Yeah, I, like I said, I was blown away. Um, I, I'm really excited to watch this again. Yeah, I don't know how much more I have to say about it other than, like, I'm excited to go back, which is yeah. hard to say for any three-hour movie. Like, Absolutely. Know, I don't know if I've ever said it for a movie this long. I never re-watched Boyhood, even though I loved it. Yeah. You know, like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like at the end of the year, there's always a movie on my list that's like, I absolutely loved this. This was incredible. I will never watch it again, but it's going yeah. on my list. And that that's kind of like where I thought this might land. And yeah. uh, I'm watching it again. So. Yeah. I also One don't thing- think it's as good as I thought it might, that it had the possibility of being, you know, mm. in, in that aspect. So I don't even sure. know if it'll make it on my top 10 of the, of the year. It might. Really? But that leads me to say like, one thing that I found interesting about this barbenheimer weekend and that i found a little emotionally exhausting (laughs) is i'll just say for me these are two of the best movies of the year for me so far like um like uh, i know that both of these will be barbie and oppenheimer will be on my top 10 i I don't know exactly where they'll be but they'll probably be high how often do you watch two of the best films of the year back to back in like one day or one weekend oh yeah for sure when newly released like sometimes that might happen for me like when i'm trying to catch up on all the best films of the year. that definitely happens at the end of the year when i'm cramming (laughs) right but but how often the opening weekend yeah 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 it's so it feels so rare and overwhelming in a in a good way mostly but like yeah no, I um, I 100% agree. And if I were making my list like right now, they would both be on the on there. Um, yeah. I just there are a lot of movies coming out this year. Hopefully, we'll see. I mean, You think there the, are because well, I don't know. Really? I well, I mean with 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 the strike, who knows what's actually going to happen. But right. people are moving release dates like crazy. So, we shall see. Let me tell you, now that Challengers has been moved to yeah. 2024, uh, my anticipated list has 
almost evaporated, I would say. <laughs> like, that was it. That was it. Um, oh, man. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'm still kind of excited about, I'm still excited about, like, theater camp and bottoms, but, yeah. you know, not, not in, the, in same the same way. way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of any other 2023 release that has me excited on the level of, like, Oppenheimer Barbie Challengers was. I would agree with that. I think, in general, I was more excited for summer movies, um, but knew there are some good movies coming in the fall. Like, do, do you, can you name any? That's, that's the problem. Um, yeah. The, what's the, the Todd Haynes movie with oh, Natalie Portman? Natalie Portman. Yeah. May, December. May yeah. December. That's one. That yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. For. There's some, uh, the Jonathan Glazer film, the zone of interest. Um, oh, I don't know I'm about that one. Excited for killers of the flower moon. Yeah. Killers of the flower moon now has, is coming to me. That's probably um, the number one for me at this point. Yeah. And I think, like, Dune, is, people are really excited about, but we don't know if Dune's going to come out this year. That is true. Yep. There's a movie that I'm very excited for starring Josh O'Connor, um, La Chimera. Um, oh. It's about uh, an Englishman who goes to Italy, and I don't I don't remember much more of what <laughs> what, what else it's about. But I, yeah. saw, I saw the trailer for it, and I was like, oh, this looks fantastic. And it's Josh O'Connor. Yeah. So. Um, okay but that i mean that's not like one of those that i'm like this is what i'm this is what this is the movie i can't wait for it's just i think there will be right. some good movies that come out especially I, not american movies. i'm so sure that there will be more good movies mm-hmm. um i think that killers of the flower moon is the only one that i think i'm like really think that this will be an hyped. incredible film yeah. that might like make my top five you know yeah no that yeah. makes sense there's almost a bittersweet you know, aspect to this Barbenheimer and that I feel like, you know, we experienced something amazing, but now, you know, it's, it's all over. Yeah. And we did it. We closed <laughs> out the year 2023. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. <laughs> oh. I mean, but really though, with the strike, we'll see what actually ends yeah. up coming out. Cause I do think even For more real. movies are going to move. So this might be back to yeah. our, our 2020 days. <laughs> it, yeah. It very well could be. We might, yes, yeah, start making our top 10 list right now. Yep. Well, it has been very fun talking Oppenheimer um, and Barbie. What a weekend, you know? Yeah. Fantastic stuff. So uh, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on all social media platforms at Sandra Amstutz. My last name is spelled A-M-S-T-U-T-Z. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Lucas and Stuff. And I'm really trying to figure out Blue Sky. So if anybody uh, is loving Blue Sky, let me know. Because <laughs> so, right now it feels like Twitter, but but uh, fewer people, which is not necessarily what I'm interested in. Um, all that to say, bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Goodbye, now. Goodbye. Go away. I'll see you soon, okay? That's it? Go home? Yep. Moving along, Padre. Goodbye, old friend. That's it. That's our show for tonight, people. 